morning I was uh, enjoying the discussion, uh, the questions answered with Steve, you know, just talking about how the, uh, the qualities in the chitta, I'm going to use chitta, mind, heart, um, the wholesome and the unwholesome, but really how my words, but how the practice is really the different ways that these habits of greed, confusion, and dosa is the word in Pali that covers the whole range of resistance, really. Um, those are kind of the three roots, you could say. How these habits are seen through, not acted on, and eventually uprooted, to use that word, or abandoned, not by an act of personal will, but through wisdom. Wisdom does the work, the ultimate um, abandoning. And so it made me want to talk tonight about uh, a sutta, where the, uh, one of the discourses of the Buddha. It's one I often refer to. I've gone back to it over and over and over in my own personal practice, and I bring it up a lot in talks. But I've never, I just wanted to actually use the, the discourse as the main theme, the discourse on, it's called the, the dart, where the Buddha is, he's talking about his subtle but um, accessible discovery, understanding of how in a moment these habits of mind arise, because nothing's just, because the, the chitta, the mind heart is changing every moment. It's, there's nothing just sitting there like a lump. You know, even when we say the latent tendency, say, for greed to arise, it's, that it's a seed, that's a way of talking, right? Because the chitta, the, the mind heart energy, mental energy is changing every moment. So it's more that there's a propensity given certain conditions that it could arise, okay? So there's no steady state in that way. But, um, so the Buddha in the sutta is describing how it arises in a moment, how he's seen it, how then it develops so quickly into habit. And this is something that's the, the second foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of Vedana, of feelings. Something that's arising for us every moment, but that is so quick we tend to overlook it and end up in the, the tornado of reactivity without quite seeing how we got there and how awareness is the conditions that we cultivate that allow wisdom clear seeing to arise. Okay, that's basically the talk. <laughs> the sutta, that's it. So he's really answering the question, what is the distinction, what is the difference that exists between a well-taught noble disciple, translated of, translation of a, an awakened person, and an untaught worldling, worldling, I always have trouble that word. Basically, the word in Pali is putijana, which I like, putijana. Seda Upandita, who was a great teacher, gave us a series of like 15 talks in a row on putijana. He'd come and say, tonight we will talk about putijana. And we all go, oh, you know, because <laughs> untaught, ordinary worldling, we're going to be talking about the defilements. Not, anyway, so what's the difference between them? So that's an interesting question. No, something we can look at. So he says, an untaught whirling, putijana, experiences pleasant feelings, experiences painful feelings, and experiences neutral feelings. Now just a clarification of language, this is uh, feelings 
is a translation of a specific Pali word. In English, feelings is very general. It could be moods and all kinds of stuff. It's a translation of the Pali word Vedana, which means specifically this, it's the, this feeling tone, you could say. We tend to say that more to distinguish from feelings from moods. This feeling tone that's felt mentally in the mental energy of uh, pleasant, painful, or neutral that's associated with each moment of sense experience, including the mental sense experience. So when he says experience a, a painful feeling, that would be if there's a, like a sharp stabbing in my leg, there's the stabbing, the Vedana, that mental experience is the feeling tone. That's what he's talking about. So it's subtle. We tend to not see it, as you'll see. But he's saying it's arising with every sense experience. The mind can notice that. So uh, an untaught worldly experience is pleasant, painful, and neutral feelings. A well-taught noble disciple likewise experiences pleasant, painful, and neutral feelings. So already, you're nodding. Somewhere deep down there, don't we think the painful ones are supposed to stop? That's really the essence. He's saying no. Now, so what's the difference that exists then between uh, an awakened one and a, an ordinary worldling? So when this world, word worldling I really have trouble with. So when Putajana is touched by a painful bodily feeling, say, she worries and grieves, laments. He beats his breast, weeps, and is distraught. He thus experiences two kinds of feelings, painful feelings, a bodily and a mental painful feeling. It is as if a person were pierced by a dart, by an arrow, and following the first piercing, the painful physical feeling, is pierced by a second arrow. Oh no, how could this happen, right? It's similar with a putajana. When touched by a painful bodily feeling, she worries and grieves, laments, beats her breast, weeps and is distraught. So she experiences two kinds of feelings, a bodily and a mental one. And I want to say also with uh, a, a, a mental and emotional unpleasant experience that can also be experienced pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And so the, the second dart, the, gr- the grieving and lamenting and beating our breast could also be in response to the first dart being uh, a mental experience, say, of sadness, whatever. So is that clear? And you get a sense how quick that happens. There's something, and it doesn't even have to be very unpleasant. A little, you know, tightness in the body, that, that mind, the mental feeling of unpleasantness is really quick. And I'm, I've always been in awe of how the Buddha noticed that and noticed how that's happening all day long because it's so quick. And often when we talk about it, people think, what's the difference between unpleasant and aversion? Because of course it's unpleasant, it moves right into aversion. In case you didn't pick it up, grieving, lamenting, beating the breast and all of that, that's aversion. (laughs) And I like it that he kind of exaggerates it because it doesn't just go, oh, unpleasant, a little bit resistant. We're off in the tornado, right? Within no time, without mindfulness, without awareness, we're just off. And many times one leads to the next to the next and we're way down the road 
You couldn't even notice what started this particular storm. What unpleasant feeling started this particular storm? Sometimes when I could trace it back, when I'd be on retreat, it would be something so innocuous. I remember one time I was doing walking meditation and I found I was pretty present. I wasn't just spaced out. But I suddenly found myself in a storm of negativity and self-hatred and then all the selective memories of all the bad things I'd done and all the people who were mean. And I, where did this come from? And I applied what is always the way to wisdom, just what's, it feels like this right now, just feels like this, just landed in the present with the storm but with the body, and then just kept walking. And what I saw, this is really true, I had a little pain in my big toe. That was it. A little pain in my big toe that I would feel when I walked. When I was aware of it, it wasn't even, you couldn't even call it pain, just uh, a little unpleasant feeling would come and boom, tornado. You know, and one leads to the next to the next. So, that's our problem. Then it goes on, and this is the part I really find very poignant and very subtle and interesting. Having been touched by that painful feeling, the second one, he, he or she, one resists and resents it. So it's not just that that moment of aversion, but we resist and resent it. And then in one who so resists and resents painful feeling, an underlying tendency or habit of resistance comes to underlie her chitta, his chitta. The habit of mind and heart tends toward resistance from that. Under the impact, and then this next piece, is under the impact of that painful feeling, one then proceeds to look for and enjoy sense happiness. And why? Why does one do so? An untaught worldling, O monks, does not know of any other escape from painful feelings except the enjoyment of sense happiness. I love this. This is so profound but so obvious, right? And then in one who enjoys a sense happiness, in other words, going to it for, for happiness, for relief, an underlying tendency, the underlying habit of craving of lust is the translation. It's like this craving, I gotta have, that's what lust means, for pleasant feelings comes to underlie the chitta, a lust for pleasant feelings. And so he does not know, according to fact, according to the Dhamma, to the laws of nature, he does not know the arising and ending of these feelings, of these pleasant feelings, does not understand the gratification of the pleasant feelings, the danger and the escape connected with these feelings. And so in one who lacks that knowledge, then the underlying tendency to ignorance (laughs) gets going, right? But you see, this is like, just to me, is so amazing, and it's so something we can really start to explore. So when one with these underlying habits that have so quickly started to be developed, when one experiences a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, or a neutral, neither pleasant nor painful, one feels it as one, they say, fettered by it, or bound by it, or uh, uh, another translation is, we feel as if joined to it. I would say stuck to it by Velcro, 
you know, whether it's pleasant, whether it's painful, whether it's either one, it's like, ah, this is me, basically. And such a one is fettered by suffering, this I declare. So that's our, um, as he describes it, our dilemma. So I just want to talk about it a little because this, as I'm saying it, is um, giving you information. I mean, many of you, if not all of you, have already experienced this because it's happening all the time. But so when we talk, it's the aspect of wisdom, of herd wisdom. You know, I'm, I'm describing it. And the Buddha described it for us not to take it on board as a piece of philosophy because that doesn't help us, but to, to, to take it to look in our own experience. Don't look too hard for something because that's wanting and it blocks. But when we're just landing in our experience with this open awareness, like I said that time when I was walking with my foot, what's happening now? I didn't try to analyze and go back. I just, with awareness, surrendered into, right now it's like this, what's going on? And just by seeing it, it can come up because you have that information. And then the more we see it moves into the third level of real insight wisdom where we really do start to understand the danger, the the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the form of these feelings. So I'll talk about that until I, and before I go to the, the difference with an awakened being who experiences the same. Well, the difference, of course, is they don't lament and beat their breast and they don't shoot themselves with the second arrow because they understand the nature. So I'll get into that more. But I want to talk just a little about this first. So the way the Buddha is describing our moment-to-moment experience here, we've, we've mentioned it before, where he's really, in a way, saying the sixth sense experience is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, in the whole realm of mental experience, pleasant and unpleasant moods, emotions, thoughts, um, conceptual realm, loving-kindness, anger, the whole realm of mental experience, um, those things are just happening over and over. That's what we experience all day, right? Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, over and over. That's, and have you noticed it, it doesn't stop? And you notice how fast stuff occurs? So that's just how it's going on. So you see, each time there's anything, it's experienced as pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. How often do we actually notice that? Even when we're mindful, everything's so fast. It's often not the um, uh, predominant or observable thing. So don't make yourself crazy always trying to see it. It's often not the observable thing. But because until we even have a sense that this is going on, what the way we misunderstand our experience, it it forms in the background our view of ourselves, our view of the world, our view when we talk about right view and wrong view. This is really how one aspect of wrong view could get formed. Does get pretty much, I would say, with most of us. So all these things happening, the sixth sense is spinning through all day, every day, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, so often not being noticed. But the inculcated habit, because we're all of an age where we have spent all of our life, how many times in a day, practicing liking the pleasant, not liking the unpleasant, not noticing the neutral. When you're bored, check out neutrality. 
You know, something else needs to happen and quick. Many times people come in kind of chagrined in an interview and say, I just noticed that I'm happier to have my mind create suffering than to be calm. (laughs) It's a little more me going on here, even if it's a suffering one. So we've practiced a lot, you know, and, and to the point that, of course, we like pleasant. If you had a choice, pleasant or unpleasant, of course, you'd choose pleasant. And I don't think Buddha wasn't saying you can't tell the difference. We can tell the difference. We can keep on telling the difference. But because it seems so joined, the, the worldview that can get in the background, and again, don't believe me, I'm just putting this out, but explore and see for yourself. Good, right, the way it's supposed to be, the direction we're all moving, doesn't it head in the pleasant direction? When your practice is working, isn't it pleasant? When something is unpleasant, in practice, in life, we tend to think it's wrong or not supposed to happen. Or when, when, when you start getting into, if anyone here ever gets into a little bout of self-judging, which I know very well you do, it either see if it arose from something pleasant. Yeah? Probably not. Same with doubt. But you may have experienced something pleasant, like a pleasant physical sensation, and there was a quick thought that this isn't what's supposed to be happening and I'm not doing it right because I should be experiencing something other. And that thought was unpleasant. And we didn't catch that. It's often the thoughts and the emotions that are really quick that we don't notice because they're so much more subtle than physical. But anyway, so, so often unrecognized. But the worldview and it really that happiness, peace, and ease is associated with pleasant. Moving all the way into liberation, when we talk about freedom of heart and mind and peace, it pretty much, it's, it's hard for me to even think about that without associating it with more pleasant feeling and less unpleasant feeling. No? And um, so when we experience in our life here discontent or unpleasantness or suffering. Again, we're not saying we go looking for suffering and we should hurt ourselves. But you know, the, we always have to explain even a little bit because the question, I hurt, why should I sit with hurting even for a second if I can move and get rid of it? It's insane, right? It's like you guys are like crazy. If I'm restless and I can get up and move, why the heck should I sit with restlessness? What's the point, you know? Then we all say, well, when we die, we're going to have to be with it so we learn now. That's... That's true. It's a way to kind of at least get the person back there practicing, but it's so much more immediate than that. Although, who knows how immediate that is also. But, <laughs> but it's so much more immediate than that because if we don't have the capacity or the interest to, to sit and be present and see what's really going on, then our response is out of all the, the care in our heart f- to make ourselves happy or to bring happiness to others are based on misperception or based on wrong view. You know? This is really the sense of that something's wrong. Like he said, there's unpleasantness. We move towards pleasant. That's the only outlet that we know the only outlet that we know. So it can be as little as feeling restless and going to get a cup of tea. 
And mind you, we're, we're looking at the process. We're, I'm not judging or saying there's anything wrong with a cup of tea. He's not saying pleasant is bad. He's just saying we need to understand how pleasant, unpleasant, neutral just keep changing and cycling around. So, but deep down, there's that, isn't it that sense you could just get it a little bit better? A little bit better. And whatever it is, even if we get what we want, we do sometimes, right? There's not unpleasant, it's pleasant, there's ah, that ease. Do we really stay present and notice how long it lasts, how quick the pleasant feeling changes? The tendency is that one's gone. We don't notice that what happened is a new experience came and that pleasant one went. We think, oh, it's gone, I need to get another. So that subtle leaning in to the next thing. That's really samsara. This sense of just, it could be a little bit better. Even when it's all copacetic, it could be a little bit better. And when it's really unpleasant to think the problem is in this situation. If I can get rid of this situation, then I'm on the path to happiness. And conversely, when something isn't working out, and you can't change it, there's often a tendency either to get angry or to blame and judge oneself or to really feel ashamed or to put the blame outward, to spin in more anger, right? You can see neutral, we just ignore. So this, when we talk about samsara, it's this living in this world of constant change where sometimes it's beautiful, sometimes it's not, where sometimes it's fair, sometimes it's not fair. Sometimes we have what we need. Sometimes everything seems to be going wrong. And we somehow think it should always keep moving in the hopeful, positive direction. And somehow we can control it. And so when there's a lot of things going wrong, we tend to judge because we think, I ought to be able to make this not happen. This is samsara, this, and we're, we're stuck to each experience like Velcro, you know, it's pleasant, ah, oh, finally, so happy. It's unpleasant, oh my God, I'm blowing. It's neutral. When is life going to actually wake up? When is something good going to happen? The Tibetans have a saying I love that the definition of samsara is the urge to correct. And it's really like that. It's not always huge. It's just that little urge leaning forward and not noticing that that's endless when we don't notice. So unexamined, some of the effects of this is actually it feeds the sense of insufficiency, of discontent. There's always, you know, kind of suddenly looking outward or to the next thing or away from this thing, never just totally present at ease with things as they are. Things that someone reminded me, I use this phrase a lot, yata bhuta, which is a phrase from the Pali, which means things as they have come to be in this moment. You get the movement, the moving nature of it. Just in this moment, things as they have come to be couldn't be any different in this moment. And when there's the wisdom, the, the, the awareness, it's just, it's just like this without thinking it needs to be corrected or anything. It's just like this. That's what allows the clear seeing and an appropriate response can come up. But when there's this sense of glomming to the pleasant and I'm it, we never can just relax it and see clearly. Same with the unpleasant. Always on that little, what next, what next? It keeps us always looking, I want to say outward, but it keeps us looking into the object, whether it's a so-called inside our own heart and mind or outside, 
looking to the experience, looking to the object for peace, for fulfillment, for meaning, and the objects, as we've been saying, are always changing. The objects, you put faith in any object for real peace and happiness, it's gone. But we don't see that. We don't see that. And so we kind of stay, kind of like in, in the... In the thrall, even when we're sort of present, but we don't see this process, in the thrall of something wonderful happens, oh, it's great, or totally something horrible happens, oh my God, you know, and that's when I said the other day, life can be exhausting when it's like that. And we're trying our best to respond appropriately, but because we don't really see what's going on, we can't. Someone's unhappy here, have some chocolate, you know. I mean, there's nothing wrong with offering somebody from chocolate, some chocolate, but it's not really going to, you know, take away the grief. So how to be with it in a, in a way that's understanding. Just to give this an example that it really works for me. It doesn't work for everybody, but I'll offer it anyway. Of, of seeing, as on TV, just how the... the uh, the ups and downs of life, pleasant, unpleasant, immediately following each other. We take it so completely personal, which we do, and then we so inhabit it. And it can completely change the next minute. We so inhabit that. And don't even see what's going on, right? We don't have the continuity of seeing. We're just in each experience. It's like this. We don't. So this is a couple of years ago. Probably most of you know, know. I'm not a football fan, but when the I think it was a couple years ago, when the New England Patriots were playing, I don't remember who, in the Super Bowl. Because I live in New England, I'm more aware. But anyway, I wasn't watching the Super Bowl. And those of you who care know who. Those of you who don't know who don't care. So it doesn't matter. (laughs) But anyway, people said, go back and watch the last two minutes, because, you know, my, my friends recorded it. So I went back to watch the last two minutes, and it was... So, you know, Tom Brady is like the star quarterback of... Um, he's sort of to New England what Steph Curry is here, but not approaching the mania that I am experiencing here around this, it's really wild, around the basketball. No, I don't know. I have no idea what happened tonight, okay? <laughs> so just forget about it. <laughs> anyway, so Tom Brady's like the star quarter. So it's the last two minutes, and he and his quarterback had done a really good job, had you know, completed a lot of passes, whatever. But now the other team had the ball, and they were, I forget, I, I'll forget the details, forgive me, those sports. But anyway, the other team was, had had the ball, and it was like within two minutes, it was clear that they were going to win. You know, there was no, it seemed like no way they could lose. And then the camera cut over to Tom Brady sitting on the sidelines. You never saw a better picture of dejection. I mean, really, he was sitting, his head was down, you know, and he's just sitting there like so dejected. And then I think the other team was actually on the goal line, and somehow they lost the ball. They turned it over, and the Patriots got the ball and managed to make a touchdown, and they won. This was all in two minutes, a completely wild and unexpected kind of thing. Then they cut to Tom Brady. He's like leaping around like a <laughs> maniac, waving his arms and grinning, and you know. <laughs> and, it was, and someone says, well, well, of course he's happy. Why should I? I'm not saying he shouldn't be happy I'm sa- or that he shouldn't be sad. It's like the, the totality of each, you know, and not kind of seeing that this is the human condition, you know. So to me, that's samsara. 
you know, and then you have to live with all that time in between, the back and the forth, the back and the forth. You know, I could just go to the last two minutes. They had to live with however long, it, however long that whole game lasted. So we don't see it. We don't recognize it. And we're always caught in looking to the object, the experience for happiness, for peace. So the next part he says, we do this and these habits get to underlies because we go for the pleasant experience because we don't understand the coming and going of the pleasant experience. We don't understand the nature, the gratification, the danger, and the escape. And this is again from the Buddha. Before my enlightenment, O monks, while I was still a bodhisattva, while he was still you know, practicing to awaken, it occurred to me, what is the gratification in the world? What is the danger? What is the escape from the world? Then it occurred to me, whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, this is the gratification, the pleasure, the joy, the happiness, the pleasant sense feelings. That's the gratification. And I just want to emphasize it because he's not saying this doesn't exist or it's bad. Yeah, this is the gratification. What's the danger? That the world is impermanent. That all experience is impermanent. It's all bound up with unreliability, with dissatisfaction and subject to change. And as I think someone said the other night, the, the change is really so momentary. I mean, we all see the big change, but we don't know the pleasant feeling is changing so quickly, coming and going, and we don't see that. And so this holding to pleasant, you know, the, the habit comes because it's going to go the next, the next, the next, and we're not really seeing as it is how fast it's changing, how totally unreliable any feeling, any experience is. It's pleasant and there's gratification in the moment, yes. But when the right away comes that, that clinging to the pleasant as thinking that's the source of happiness, not seeing the danger, right? And the escape is the abandoning of this lust, this desire for the gratification, for the pleasant. This is the escape from the world. I'll talk about it a little again, but I want to point out Escape from the world, he didn't say, he said abandoning of this habit of craving, of lust, is the um, escape from the suffering in the world. He didn't say the escape from the world is go in a cave and never have anything to do with anybody. He didn't say that. He didn't say that there's no more gratification in the world. He said the abandoning of the lust. Agreed. So that really what Steve was talking about this morning. That is really where freedom comes. And it's not an act of personal will. Because it doesn't work. We can try. I think I said the other day, you try all the time, I'm not going to crave anymore. I really get it. I heard it, I've read it. I've seen how fast pleasant things change. So I'm giving up believing that that's really the way to happiness. I mean, it's, it's, it's something to incline the mind towards. And if it works for you, I'd, I'd really, wonderful, I'd love to hear it. But the habits are so insidious, and as you see, it happens so quick. So, abandoning lust for the world does not mean abandoning interest in the world. 
It doesn't mean abandoning care or compassion or engaged activity. It doesn't mean any of that. Actually, when, and even in a moment, it doesn't have to be the heart-mind completely free forever of greed, of aversion, but when there's moments of steady awareness and we say we can see clearly and wisdom comes, in those moments that are wholesome heart-mind, there isn't greed, hatred, delusion. The response to the moment is going to arise out of beautiful, wholesome states. That's what there's room for when they're not shoved out by wanting, by leaning into the next thing, by avoiding something because it's unpleasant. So actually, the abandoning, even in a moment, of lust for the pleasant and uh, resistance to the unpleasant is what allows for a more appropriate response, whether it's compassion or wisdom or equanimity or just a a sense of just doing what needs to be done in this moment without any big whoop about it, one way or the other, you know, without resistance, without wanting, without putting it all back to what does it mean about me, you know, just what needs to happen. But it's not an act of personal will. Wisdom does the work. Wisdom does the work. It's wisdom, which is a quality in the citta, that arises just like greed, comes and goes, just like greed. So what we can do, and what we are doing, is um, to cultivate the conditions that give rise, that allow for wisdom to arise more frequently, to get more strong, that we actually can begin to cultivate a different habit of mind, right? And there's many ways to do that. The, the main one, and the one, of course, we're talking about here, you know what I'm going to say, right? Right, I don't have to like... It's the long habit of continual awareness. And it really is an amazing thing. I mean, we're going to keep talking about it. Even someone today said something about, you know, what wisdom is coming from noticing my foot's asleep. Fair question. And in the moment, we don't get, you know, it's not like, you know, oh, I get this great wisdom I see, but every moment of awareness that isn't distorted by these habits is a moment that's allowing for clear seeing. The continuity is necessary because we need to see the process. See what I've been describing about a pleasant or unpleasant and and, and to notice that, to notice the reaction, to notice then how the reaction spins out of control and leads to more thoughts and feelings and then how we go for the pleasant and then how we start. We need a steadiness of awareness to really notice the process. And the switch that happens, the way the wisdom starts to work in our experience is we start to get more interested in the process than in our reactions to each individual experience or object. Because our habit is with each object or experience, we assess it, like it or don't like it, what does it mean about me, or what's it going to be affect, or what can I do? And, you know, there's a sense of, of separateness, of one, one, one. We don't see the big picture. We, we kind of stay in this separate little reactivity. And we stay in what does it mean about me. But when we start to see with this steady awareness, it starts to get a little bit momentum, we start to see a process. This is where, oh, wizard, oh, I see it working. I really see it working, like that stupid example of me and my big toe hurting. 
I really saw it. And I wasn't expecting anything, just with awareness looking at, oh, look at that. It wasn't about I have to stop aversion or I should fix my big toe or whatever or how stupid am I that this happened. It was like, wow. This is like a natural law. This is how it's working when these habits have been developed of aversion and wanting greed without recognizing them. And seeing it function, it's like, wow, how cool. Not expecting with the act of will to come in, okay, now I see it once, it's over. Think how, how many mind moments we've practiced these other habits in our life. Just think about it <laughs> in one day. So in, in a way, it's kind of t- encouraging. I'll say it's encouraging. I don't think we need as many moments of awareness wisdom to cut through for insight to arise as we've had moments of delusion and greed and aversion. I really don't think we need, that's the power, you know. The wisdom and the wholesome qualities are actually a lot stronger because it's the truth of how things are. This other way of functioning is based in confusion and not seeing. So when you see, oh, wow, look at that, it's unpleasant, I go, isn't that interesting? And then I know, I know that that process was true you don't have to think about it anymore. You know, when you, that's, the, that's when we talk about insight, the quality of insight. We think about it later, but it has this sense of, oh, the perception is shifting. You see it in a different way. Seeing, it doesn't have to be visual. I'm just using that for all perceiving. Oh, that's what's going on. You know, and you just know it. Like when a puzzle, when you suddenly, one of those trick of the eye puzzles and you can only see it one way and suddenly you see it the other way? Oh, you couldn't see it until you could. And once you can, you can't not. But you can fall back in the other way. But you know it's there. And if someone comes and tells you, no, you didn't see that, you don't have to get into an argument. But you know, right? You know. So this is really what the quality of insight is. You can see why we can't create it from an act of will, because that's just thinking about it. And we don't even know what we're looking for because we haven't recognized it yet. Because the way it actually comes out is so different from what we expect. So we become more interested in the process rather than entranced by what's going on. And this is the shift. This is where the awareness, the steady awareness becomes, as Ajahn Sumedho calls it, He calls awareness an escape hatch, the way out of samsara. And now I have to say again, when I said the way out of samsara, did somewhere in the back of your mind, not quite enunciated, again think we're not going to have to keep going through all this crap? (laughs) You know, the samsara. But the stuff keeps happening. So this is from Semedo, kind of. He said, he kind of gives a grin and he goes, but it's not what we might think it is the way out of samsara. It doesn't mean this stuff stops. He says, when we really determine in our hearts and minds, we really determine to ourselves that we have a commitment to cultivate awareness in our life. And you know, in a retreat like this, if it's new to you, it might give you enough taste that you might want to make that determination. It doesn't mean we make it once and it's over, but it's a, a sense of re-altering our priorities. He talks about this a lot. When you really determine in yourself to cultivate awareness, then we start using everything that happens in our life 
everything that happens in our life, no matter what's occurring, as a way to cultivate awareness, to a way to cultivate awareness. And it's on the retreat, it's off the retreat, that's why we have it this way. Someone today, I won't say who, because I didn't ask permission, but just said something I really loved, so beautiful about the way we have this determination and work in our life on retreat, for taking, deciding to take some classes of some you know, kind of crafts that they're not particularly good at, and just watching the whole process of trying to do and doing or not being able to do, all the reactions that go on in the mind, and the whole thing is in the light of awareness, just watching what the mind's doing being present with that whole process. But the difference between being with a process and being with a process with awareness is that Velcro isn't there. You're like Tom Brady jumping up and down or really dejected, but it's like knowing, you know, oh yeah, I think this is going to make me happy. How long was he happy from that? Then there was this whole football deflating, I don't know what, and he's being (laughs) sued. I mean, you know, something happens. (laughs) That's how life is. And Ajahn Sumedho's saying... It's not that we create some ideal state with, you know, the continuity of awareness. He said, you know, awakening out of delusion, we find ourselves in reality as it is. Yata Bhuta, reality as it's come to be in this moment. And again, the real isn't what you're expecting. Life is fair and unfair. There's pleasure and pain. There's success and failure. There's horrible things and beautiful things. That doesn't stop happening. That doesn't stop happening. It doesn't go away. What changes? Back to the sutta. What changes is our understanding, and the understanding changes our response. So the the well-taught noble disciple does not beat his breast and weep when touched by a painful feeling. It is one kind of feeling she experiences, a bodily one, but not a mental feeling, as if pierced by a dart, but not hit by a second dart. So having been touched by that painful feeling, she does not resist and resent it. Can you imagine that? That's why we practice just being with little pains, being with restlessness, being with something that's unpleasant but not killing you to see that it's really possible to be totally present without resisting and resenting it, without needing to move away to go to something pleasant. And then when you're really clear about that, you can eat the shrimp. But it helps to be clear about that first. If you eat the shrimp before you're clear about it, we don't learn. That's where the awareness comes in. So under the, he doesn't resist the the unpleasant, And under the impact of that painful feeling, she does not proceed, does not need to go look for sense happiness. Why not? Because a well-taught disciple knows of an escape from painful feelings other than by enjoying sense happiness. To me, that's like the most kind of profound statement here. We, and we know, even just for a moment, we know there's an escape from painful feelings other than just needing to enjoy sense happiness. To me, that, that not knowing that there's any other way out of unpleasant than to go for sense happiness is so poignant to me. I mean, look at the world. I don't have to say much else. Look at the world. And this sense of we have to get more to be happy and those people who 
are born into a situation where they can't get more, where there's really a lot more of unpleasant than pleasant. You know, we think, well, a lot of compassion if we can be present, but kind of like it's hopeless for them. But that's, that's not it, or hopeless for us when things really go wrong. But to see that there's another way out of that suffering. She knows, so there's no underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feelings. That doesn't get developed. Because she knows, she understands, according to facts, the arising and ending of those pleasant feelings. It comes and goes. You know that. So, and the gratification, the danger, and the escape connected with these pleasant feelings. And so when she experiences a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, or a neutral feeling, she feels it as one who is not bound by it, as one who is not joined to it, as one who is not fettered by it. Such a one, O monks, is called a well-taught noble disciple who is not fettered to suffering. This I declare. That's really one way of looking at what we're really practicing. So what does that mean? To experience it without being bound to it, but we still experience it and we're not fettered by suffering. It's really this long, continuous awareness that allows that to happen. The situation may stay just the same, but the unfetteredness, the freedom, is in the completely different response that arises from wisdom, not because we think we should. I'll give you an example from a good friend of mine who's given me permission to, to use this. I've been practicing, you know, in the Dharma for, for many, many years. We're close friends. And she, um, her, both, both her parents are dead now, but her parents lived in, in Texas. And she had always had a, you know, difficult relationship with the family. But she would, you know, close. She'd go home every year and, and visit her parents and her siblings. And it was always a, a bit fraught. Not like horrible, but, you know, normal fraught. Difficult. But she said every time she'd go home, just as Steve or someone was saying here, you know, if you think you're enlightened, go home and see what responses, what reactions come up. She said every time she'd go there, she'd, she'd go on the plane on the way, she'd go, I'm going to act from metta, I'm going to be really kind, I'm not going to be triggered, I'm really, you know, does it sound familiar? Have you ever done that? As soon as she walked in the door, bomb, you know, she's like the most reactive she's ever been, and she'd go, why? She's making all these because it's not an act of will. So we're talking over years. So she started, and I'm not trying to make a plug for this, but she started practicing really looking at the steady awareness and looking at what's arising in the citta in any moment. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, vedna, what's the response? So we notice when there's anger, we notice when there's greed, we notice when there's love, we notice when there's metta. It starts to be a habit. And this is the awareness getting momentum. It doesn't, it's not a some, some great state. It's not based on a kind of structured concentration that goes away at the end of a retreat. That's why it doesn't feel so special right now. But it starts to creep in, and we know it is from talking to you all. You just, you're still wanting some juicy state you're not going to get. So you don't quite trust this yet, you know. So anyway, she'd done a retreat like this, and she's going home, you know, on the plane. And she said, okay, she just made the, I'll just keep on, on practicing just watching my mind. That's all, just the awareness watching my mind. Rather than make this commitment, you know, I'm going to be the perfect daughter when I walk in the door. 
So she's on the plane watching her mind and just, you know, just being mellow about it. She had a wait in the airport, so she went over in a corner and did a little walking meditation and just watching her mind. But then she said she noticed in the, the plane watching her mind that this kind of um, reactivity, kind of not just resistance, but kind of a little aggressiveness toward, you know, was, was there in her own mind. She's like her mind thinking, well, when I walk in, my sister whoever is going to do this and this and that, and I'm not going to put up with that. And she goes, oh. Wow. So actually, I'm walking in the door with negativity, you know, ready for a fight. And I had no clue because I was saying, I'll be peaceful, I'll be loving, I'll be happy, but not with awareness, seeing what was really there. And so, so she kept on with the awareness. She said, oh, wow, look at that. Not, oh, you're so bad. She said, oh, look at that. And so she just kept on watching. She walked in. She was aware of that. Her sister did whatever. She said it was the best visit she ever had because she was just interested in the process. And what happens with the clear seeing is the wisdom kicks in and she actually was responded much more, with much more openness, much more acceptance, because she wasn't blocking what was going on in her own resistance, because she was aware of it when her sister did do the things she always did. My friend was already aware of her resistance and a wisdom said, yeah, you don't need to act from it. You know, it doesn't have to drive the bus. And she was actually able to be, not even able, it just happened by itself. That's what we mean when we say wisdom does the work. Our work is that really getting interested in the process. And that's what Ajahn Sumedho means by stepping out of samsara. The same stuff's going on. The Velcro isn't there. The wisdom just from seeing, seeing how things are is all we need to do. That's what I love about right view. Once there's a real recognizing accurately, the way that craving is abandoned, it's not like, oh my God, I have to give it up. It stops making sense. It doesn't, when you see, oh, I really want this pleasant feeling to last and you can watch it evaporate and you're aware, it doesn't make any sense because craving's un- uncomfortable. We don't like to be with it. You know, it's, oh, yeah, craving doesn't make, poof, it goes away when she walks in and her sister's starting in her reactive mode, but she knows her sister was really had a lot of suffering. And when she was aware of her own reaction, not, not reacting to it, getting angry at her sister didn't make any sense. Because when you can see the suffering in someone, what naturally comes is compassion when we're not one. You don't have to think about it. I mean, we can cultivate it in other ways, but in this way, the wisdom does the work. So when we think about, oh my God, I have to give up, craving and attachment to all the beautiful things. That's what we hear, isn't it? Giving up attachment to lust for, ple- for the beautiful things in the world. We think that means giving the things up. But it's all still happening. Giving up the craving is like the hugest freedom, relief. And we can't do it because an act of will is usually either coming from me wanting something different. Duh. Wisdom's like, oh, it's like this. Craving doesn't make any sense. Boom. It's gone. Play with it in little ways. In little ways, not in big ways. Then it'll come in in the big ways. And then we see, as I said before, this, when the craving, the aversion, these habits are abandoned, it doesn't mean that one is necessarily just becomes quiescent, just lives a quiet life. One is as active as one's personality ever wanted to be, with, with more um, 
being more in sync with what's really going on, responding in a much more appropriate way. And, and the Buddha says this, it really, I just want to end with this, again from the Buddha. Someone asks, in what way is one a wise person of great wisdom? In what way? And he says this many different ways. So this one just suits my talk. In what way is one a wise person of great wisdom? He says, uh, such a person does not intend, so that's the, 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 the chitta in the movement, the intention, the wanting, does not intend for his own affliction or for the affliction of others or of both. So we don't have any arising of like wanting to do something to harm ourselves or other. Rather, when a wise person thinks, she thinks only of her own welfare. And notice, your own welfare is included. It's, we're all equal. Thinks only of her own welfare, of the welfare of others, the welfare of both, and the welfare of the whole world. It is in this way that one is a wise person of great wisdom. So just by getting interested in the process, see what kind of, if it comes up, you're making a commitment to awareness and just gently watching, this wisdom arises quite naturally. And from seeing such a little thing as pleasant feeling come and go, like someone said, you know, everything, I think Alexis said, with one thread, the whole Dhamma is attached. So play with that. Play with it over the days. Don't make a big deal about it, but it's really... It's really one of the keys in to recognizing reality and freedom. So thank you for listening to the Dharma. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. So finding what posture, what activity supports you in this next period to just keep noticing what's happening in the heart, the mind, in the body, just gently, lightly. It's not meant to be an onerous task. It's really, it comes to be so much more relaxing and interesting than all this doing, doing, doing. And if you have energy and it helps you to come and sit with us at the last sitting, most welcome. Please come. So, thank you.